Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. All right, welcome to War Room. I'm here with a, a friend of mine from grad school days, Jennifer Keene, and uh, a scholar of tremendous repute in the First World War and on issues of veterans and issues of gender in war, and an international uh, author as well, writing on stuff in France, uh, Fulbright in Africa. So uh, a really fantastic person, and I'm really glad, Jennifer, that you're here to talk about writing and to talk about the way that you approach writing. So I'm going to start just by asking you when you first knew that this was something that you were good enough at that you could do it professionally? That's a great question because especially students always feel like you knew exactly your whole life what your career trajectory was going to turn out to be. And I think that for me, I always wanted to be a writer. I knew that from a very young age. From from when you were a kid? From like when I was a kid, writing stories. But I always was interested in historical fiction, and so I also had an interest in history. But I think when it came to thinking about being a professional historian, somebody who could who could write history, that that really occurred to me uh, in my senior year in college. So it was quite late in the mm-hmm. game. I was a history major, but I thought I was going to be a journalist. And I took a class in social history, and it changed everything for me. It made me realize that you could write stories about average people's experiences that were meaningful, um, that really, um, at that time, was an unusual take to uh, have on on history and, and the kinds of narratives that you crafted. So were you one of those kids that had a notebook out and you were writing stories when you were a kid? I was. It's so funny. I remember this book I read when I was a child called Harriet the Spy, which I think has since been made into a terrible movie, but it was a book. And this, of course, is Harriet the Spy who's walking around making notes the whole time about her neighbors. And and I was that kind of kid with a notebook writing these stories constantly at night and and plays. I also wrote a lot of plays, which I'd make my friends perform. And so, (laughs) so I had this idea of dialogue, of narrative, of story storytelling and I think that in a way that beginning with that interest and then coming to history um, helped me in the craft of writing history as opposed to not just being interested in the past or understanding what happened but when you then have to convey your passion and enthusiasm and interest through words to an audience you do have to have some skill as a writer as well and sometimes um, we have uh, sometimes those two things don't don't necessarily come together. Yeah. So how'd that go from a, a an event, something that you're doing just for fun with a notebook with your friends, and, and then as it becomes something that you're starting to learn professionally, do you remember? I mean, I clearly remember going through that transition where it's like there are actual like rules and standards and conventions that you're supposed to follow, and you can break them, but you have to know what they are before you break them. And do you remember going through that process too, or was it more seamless for you as you just kind of developed through the you know, undergrad to grad school to scholar? I think that it was a gradual evolution. I mean, I spoke about the idea of when I sort of made a decision to go to graduate school, which was after I took a social history class. But I remember even in in college, uh, when I would have essay 
exams. I really looked forward to them, which to my friends seemed the strangest thing of all. But I found that at that moment, this knowledge that I had crammed into my head over the course of the semester when I could be crafting an essay, mm -hmm. that actually the experience of writing it, I would put things together in new ways even as I was taking the exam. Um, and so it, it became kind of a creative enterprise for me to be thinking about, about taking tests that way. So I knew that I, there was something a little different about me that I would be looking forward to the essay portion of a test. Because to me, it wasn't just about regurgitation. It was actually a chance to, to think about things more originally. So there was that component to it. And then I think the other sort of third part that I would add to this is again um, a class that I took in my uh, senior year, which is about theories of history. So suddenly this notion that um, the way that you approached evidence and the kind of, of uh, theoretical paradigms that you could have in your head that you didn't even know how they'd been put there, that you had to be self-conscious about that, that also interested me because again, it was this, I think what I'm sort of suggesting here is that in all these ways, it was the creative, the creative aspects of history that appealed to me first. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. They think, yeah. well, the facts are the facts. And I mean, you probably have this happen to you too, where people say, well, don't we know it all already? Mm -hmm. I mean, what else is there left to discover? And so people don't understand how much creativity has to go into the writing of history. And so I think for me, when I think about the idea that I always wanted to be a writer, that I enjoyed taking exams because I could put ideas together in, 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 in new and creative ways, and this, this thing about uh, theories of history, I mean, sort of what are the, the paradigms that you're, you're using to approach evidence, that this really does speak to the, the creative aspects of the historical profession, and that that, that drew me in. Plus, of course, I'm, I'm obviously interested in evidence and research, mm. and I enjoy that process as well. But maybe this is a little bit different story than some other historians might have of their path to how they became a professional historian. Yeah, this is one of the eye-opening things for me. I, had, uh, I went over to a friend of mine's mother's house who was dean of one of the graduate schools at the University of Pittsburgh, and she asked how graduate school was going for me. And I said, I'm pretty sure I'm the dumbest person in every room that I walk into. And she looked at me and she said, that's not what it's about. It's about being creative. And that, oh, that, interesting. that yeah. really opened yeah. it up for me that right. I didn't, you know, I could be the dumbest person in every room and it, I could still be okay. So obviously your path to this and my path to this are a little different. So how do you model good What's writing? What's your path to this? Oh, I have no idea. I'm interviewing you. Well, you can interview me later. Um, we only have a little bit of time, so we're staying in the hourglass. Um, how do you model this process for people who didn't go through this the way that you did? And how do you help people understand, for lack of better words, the craft of writing or the art of writing? How do you right. do that with your students who maybe didn't go through that same process you went through? I tend to be a little formulaic with them, to be honest, in where I really make them think about um, what will make somebody else who is not, who doesn't believe to be that they're interested in your topic or they know nothing about it, how are you going to convince them uh, that, that this is actually something worthwhile studying? And so I, I have some, uh, some techniques for doing this. One thing is when I, when they're writing their essays, I'm very insistent, for example, that uh, people begin with, with what we call a, a hook. And the, so the question is, how are you going to hook somebody into this story? How are you going to hook them into caring about what you're about to, to tell them? And I also um, try to get them to think about what are your wow moments? What are the moments where somebody could read this and go, wow? That's amazing, or wow! I didn't, I didn't know that. You, you have to be kind of 
postmarking those things along the way for your your readers. And then, of course, and this is not nothing new to me, but if if we if we don't end your essay with the question "So what?" answered, then you haven't you haven't done your your job. And the other thing I've started doing lately is a is a as a verbal exercise with them, something called a three-minute thesis competition, which I've been having my students do, where they have to get up in three minutes and sort of articulate both the project and also the so what and, and interest people in it. And it it's actually helps them with their writing because when you get up and think, okay, what's going to be the anecdote or the puzzle or the question that I posed at the beginning that pulls people in and how am I going to keep them going through a, a fairly quick rendition of my research and leave them feeling like this was worth listening to. It becomes a kind of outline for them then to go back and actually um, work on their, their essays. But you, it, you have to teach this to students because students come in with the five paragraph model in their head. They know they have a thesis. They've been taught a different kind of formula. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good example of what you just said. They've been taught the rules and I believe in those rules. And, and then they come into me and I'm trying to shake them up a little bit and say, okay, now you have to generate a, a good narrative writing style to be able to convey your message. And and I tell them, and I think this is true for me, and um, you probably feel the same way, that writing is a skill you work on your whole life, and you're, you, you strive every day to be a better writer. Mm -hmm. So I, I do not accept the excuse, I'm just not a good writer. Yeah, I don't buy that either. I don't take <laughs> right? it either. Yeah. Or I'm just yeah. not a good public speaker. Yeah. Look, I was a terrible public speaker when I was in college, and now I practically make a living public speaking. So it's, it's, uh, it, these are skills that you can develop. You just have to be encouraged to uh, appreciate that they are skills you need, that these are not luxuries anymore. That you, We're in the age of TED Talks. We're in the age where uh, uh, people, if they're not interested within the first two minutes, are just going to get their phones out and, and turn you off so you, or stop reading. So you, you really need now to be able to, in a way, go back to how history used to be presented to people, which is that the narrative form was privileged. And we got away from that, and I think now we're, we're, we're finding our way back to it. Yeah, I think that's right, especially when yeah. you look at what people are actually reading. It's the narrative form, and it's the story, exactly. and you've got to find a way to get your main point across through that narrative. Yeah. So g give me a sense, a little bit of your, your process. You have an idea of something that you want to work on. Let's say an article, you've got a question you want to you wanna ask. How do you do this? I know different writers do this differently. I tend to write and research almost simultaneously. What's your process? Do you want to get the research done first? Do you want do you outline a lot? How do you approach a, an article length project? So I am not a researcher and writer at the same time. I definitely research first. So for me, if I have a question that I, I'm interested in, I really like to immerse myself sort of fully in the, in the primary source material um, until I feel that I have a clear sense of direction in terms of what I'm seeing. The other thing that I do is while I, I clearly read broadly in the historiography, what other historians have, read, have written before I begin a project, once I start researching, I stop reading because I don't want to be uh, either persuaded by other interpretations or, or feel overly responsive to other interpretations, to feel that everything I write has to be um, either a response, immediately a response. I want to understand my own view of the material sort of in a, in a, in a kind of clear way. 
and 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 so so I'll do my research, immerse myself in the material, then st then start writing, and when I feel that I understand what my view is, go back to the historiography. And sometimes it means I have to switch things around because sometimes it turns out I'm not as original as I think I am, <laughs> <laughs> and then a few other people have actually seen this before me, and then I will acknowledge that, or then I understand that my view is in fact challenging the views. Of, of, of others. So I, I've, I've read these things before, but you know how it is, you move on and mm -hmm. so there's sort of background noise for me, then I re-engage with them and then, and then adjust, adjust where I am. And the reason I do that is because I found that when I, when I was um, consulting things along the way, I would be too influenced by them. And it somehow can force you into, again, this idea of paradigms that you, you start accepting as the way to interpret material and you don't feel as free necessarily to challenge it. So it's not, I'm not gonna say it's a, it's a really time efficient way of, of writing, um, but to me it, it's, it's just the process that's worked the best for me in terms of feeling that my own voice has been able to come through in the writing that I, that I do. Yeah, I don't think there is a time a time efficient way of writing. No. I mean, a, 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 a very, I don't know. You seem to have mastered it, but no, a very distinguished member of, of this uh, this profession, the, the historical profession, uh, told me a long time ago that he thinks that students are not illiterate; they're post literate because they just don't want to put the time in That's right. to really learn how to write, and yeah. that it is difficult and. It it's takes, torture. It's torture. It's a lot of rewriting. It's a lot of editing. And the problem I've always thought is the people who are really good at this make it look like they must have written it in one sitting when in fact there's this agonizing process That's of right. critiquing your own work, throwing out things you spent weeks writing, you know, all of that that, that is difficult. And, and failing sometimes at projects that you think, I mean, I have started several projects where I did invest a significant amount of time in them. And only to, uh, in a sense, uh, come to a dead end yeah. in terms of really either feeling that at the end it, it wasn't a worthwhile project <clears throat> or I didn't really have anything unique to add to, the, to what had already been accomplished. And I try to tell students, I mean, failure does matter here. I mean, understanding where you don't want to go, uh, right. even if you spend a few months figuring that out, is 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 worth it in the end. I mean, that's part of the scholarly journal. And I mean, this is where I start feeling that there's also an element of production that you want, but there's also a personal journey that you're going through. And so sometimes, I mean, I can spend a day uh, you know, researching a point that I really don't need to spend a day on it, but I get fixated on it and I just keep going and going and it's sort of personally edifying. Maybe in the actual written piece, it's gonna be a sentence or two, so I didn't really need to do all the work I did, but you get drawn in and then you think what a luxury you have to have the life of a scholar where you can indulge your own intellectual curiosity and 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 take that time mm -hmm. to really satisfy uh, the the question that, that that you have, even if there's not a tangible product at the end that seemingly justifies the amount of time that you've dedicated to it. And usually, if you're dedicating that much time, there's something in your brain that it's it's playing with. And I, exactly. sometimes that'll happen with me. And yeah. months later, years later, I'll mm -hmm. come back and say, "Okay, that's where that fits." That's right. So some of it is just the instinct that you develop as you mm -hmm. do this more and more. But that's right. It's as you said, it can feel like you're going down a dead end, and maybe you're not. So we do have that luxury in a way our students who are on a, maybe a one-week deadline to get the paper done don't have. But mm -hmm. for people doing wider research. 
So, so I want to also get a sense of your um, editing project. I think one of the skills I had to develop was the ability to read something I had written with as objective eyes as you can with something that you've written and go back through and really critique it. Be able to read paragraphs, sentences, whole sections of work mm -hmm. and say, this just is not getting me where I need to go. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Do you, have, do you have people you keep going back to for critique? Have you, have you sharpened that ability to be self-critical in your work? Or how, how do you do that? I think that there's different different techniques for this. I have definitely learned a lot from the copy editors that I've worked with over the years. And in fact, it was frustrating for me at the beginning of my academic career to work with a copy editor who was fantastic, but then to ask myself, why wasn't I ever taught these things mm. when in all these years of schooling that I've had? Why am I now suddenly a copy editor is, is teaching me um, things about grammar or things about clarity of, of, uh, of of thought that I felt in all the writing I had been doing through my undergraduate and graduate years, maybe somebody else should have taken the time to uh, to help me along. So the process of working with excellent copy editors has helped me. I think that also the idea, I'm a big proponent of thinking through writing. And I do try to teach my students this as well, that a lot, and maybe this is going back to what I was saying earlier about why I liked taking essay exams so much, because it's sort of this thinking through writing. And I think if you embrace a thinking through writing approach, you are going to have to also accept that a large part of what you write will get thrown away because you're using writing as a process for figuring out your thoughts and figuring out your, your argument and figuring out the best evidence that you have to, to, to establish the point that you want, you want to make. And so that, that does, in a sense, also mean that you can't be overly committed to, um, at least for me, okay, my goal is 500 words today because tomorrow I may look at those 500 words and only yeah. keep 100 of them, right? right? It's a question of writing I mean, 500 good words. 500 right? good <laughs> words. And, and so, so I think that, that that philosophy has helped me. And the third thing I would say is time. I do think it's important to put things aside and this is actually the great thing about sending something out for review. You send it out for review, and it's gone for for you know a few weeks, sometimes even a month. Uh, comes back to you, and suddenly you have fresh eyes in terms of, and you can be a little ruthless even mm -hmm. with your own work because at that point you're not so emotionally connected to it. It almost comes back to you as a fresh piece, and you can yeah. see the things that you that you want to you want to adjust. I think you almost have to do that, right? That process almost has to happen. Exactly. And again, when we're giving students short deadlines, they don't have that luxury. That's right. But when you have long deadlines or no deadlines, really, you, you have the luxury of being able to let it sit, come back to it with fresh eyes and say, this isn't connecting. This isn't moving things together the way I want it to. It's really hard for students. I mean, it's hard to really uh, have students do this when you're assigning long pieces of writing. If you have shorter pieces of writing, in fact, some of the undergraduate classes where I've had the greatest success with this kind of approach is when they're doing very short pieces. And it's the idea of just precision of language, of getting it right. You can do multiple drafts. I mean, it's hard, it's very time consuming to have a big class and everybody has a 10 page paper and, and rough drafts and the students have other competing pressures with them. Uh, but it's uh, but it's mandatory in graduate school. I mean, there's no way that anybody in graduate school should be allowed to get through handing in just one draft of something. They right. should be. They need to go through these these multiple drafts. And and like I said, just uh, just really recognize that writing is a skill. And we I mean, we both had 
our greatest successes with students who we see coming in with not great writing skills and how and those that then we, we, we send them off on their way and we can see the progress that they've made those dedicated yeah. students that really want to work on it and that's that's probably one of our most gratifying teaching experiences absolutely yeah so how about um, the standard question I like to ask all writers because I, I do face it sometimes too I know we all do if you have writer's block if you are stumbling a little bit what's your method for getting out of it that's a great question, and I think anybody that has the absolute answer to that could make a lot of money. <laughs> it's um, it's a great question. I think that for me, sometimes it's it's the <clears throat> well, sometimes it's it's just to uh, keep writing and to realize that part of the problem is in, with writer's block can literally be you're not sure what you want to say. Uh, when you really know what you want to say, the words just come out. And so to me, writer's block is usually a sense of thought block, that you're, you're, you, know, you really don't understand what your argument is or what your, your next point should be. Mm-hmm. And, and so in a way, you, you have to just grapple with that challenge and I'll have days where I'm I'm thinking well where am I going with this and I'm literally sitting at the computer staring at the screen and I write one sentence no that's not it I write another sentence no that's not it and you just have to deal with the struggle but the other thing in just our modern world is you have to get rid of the distractions. Yeah. I mean, what's the easiest mm-hmm. thing to do is is not write when you're feeling like that. It's just to give up and say, oh, I guess I can't write today because I can't figure out what, what to say. And I do, you know, this is, this is a, kind of a trite thing to say, but you've got to get off the phone. You have to get off social media. You just have to, you have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and, and think. And, and, and sometimes thinking doesn't doesn't happen when you're sitting i think the thing that maybe helps me the most when i'm truly just can't think next is to go for a run and you uh and i run with no headphones no nothing i'm not distracted with media and you sort of free your mind and you hear a lot of people tell you stories like this like i was taking a shower i was walking the dog and i mean you know when you're or I was just about to doze off to sleep and suddenly it came into my head. And so, so I think it's, there's no one answer. So sometimes it's, you just keep, you keep struggling with the sentence and other times you walk away, but you walk away in a, in a way that is going to liberate your, your mind to sort of almost subconsciously solve the problem for you. So that's apparently, yeah, that's what the neurobiology suggests, yeah. that you've given your brain a problem. And even if you don't know that your brain's working on it, it's working on it. Yes. Which is why it may come to you when you're driving or when you're running. And we had a colleague of ours from where we got our PhDs that actually kept those kids' crayons for the shower because he would get ideas in the shower oh, and then he could write out whatever right. it was that was occurring to him. That's right. So apparently this is a thing. Yeah. Um, and again, it's better if you don't have the hard and fast deadline right in front of you. But you know, apparently this is the way that the brain works. And I think that sometimes now we're so afraid of being bored or not making productive use of our time that we don't, you know, I think the shower analogy is a good one because it's, uh, 
it's where we're pretty much the freest. Right. But you, think of so many times now we're in the car, we're listening to podcasts, we're running, we have music in our ears, we're, we're in the waiting room, we're looking at our phones. I mean, we, we never really give ourselves these moments that I think used to just be part of life where mm -hmm. you would just sort of be sitting there with nothing to do or with your brain not actively engaged. And that would free yourself to actually work these problems out. And, and I do think that if you want to live a creative life, you have to have the discipline. There is a, a part of this that inquires discipline. And the discipline now is not just sitting at your computer until I write 500 words a day. It's also the discipline to, to get those distractions away from your brain so that your brain can actually help you in solving these problems that you, that you want to solve. Yeah, I sometimes do it by looking for writers who are solving similar problems to what I'm trying to do. Not the same, but something mm -hmm. similar. And reading their work to see how they're breaking it down. I mm -hmm. read a lot of introductions of books mm -hmm. just to see how people are conceptualizing problems. And I tend to be most interested in those books that, that do that really well. Take a problem I think I know something about, mm -hmm. but give me a different approach to, to think mm -hmm. about it. That mm -hmm. sometimes helps. Yes, yes, yes. Um, okay, so let's switch gears a little bit from writing to reading. Um, you're going to go on vacation. We all go on vacation this summer. What kind of books do you typically bring with you when you travel? So for me, my guilty pleasure is still fiction. And because I spend all of my professional life reading um, uh, nonfiction, reading history, when I go on vacation, I, I try to go back to reading fiction. Now, my family denies that I'm actually taking a vacation because I tend to mostly read World War I-related fiction, <laughs> so I get accused of taking my work with me as I go. But what I like about um, reading fiction is that, first of all, it was my first love. As I mentioned, this is really how I think I got into the notion of being a writer. But I also think that fictional characters, I mean, a, 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 they, they give you emotion, they give you motivation, they give you consequence. They, they really do help you be a better writer of history because you have this luxury of getting inside people's heads and trying to figure out why they're doing what they're doing, which is, if you think about it, exactly what the historian is always trying to, to do. Um, but we can't make it up. We have to have documents or evidence of, of, to, um, to bring us to our conclusions where somebody who is writing fiction is a little, is a little bit freer in that, in that respect. But I think that it's, I love it because it reminds me of just the importance of, of writing that can transport you into another world and keep you so invested in that world that you, that you don't want to stop you don't want to break away from it, that you just want to keep reading. And what and one habit that I, I broken myself of is that I used to always finish a book, like no matter what, if even if, if, if and after the first 50 pages, like I don't I don't really like this book, I would I would muscle through. And now I'm a little more cutthroat about about it. <laughs> I've gotten the same way. I've got where if I, I don't feel like, like it, if I feel 100 like, pages, I'm not exactly. In I'm like I'm, I'm on vacation. I got six books that I want that I want to read, and if this one can't cut in 50 pages, off I go. But the other <laughs> thing that I've really noticed is that um, how hard it is to end to end a novel successfully. And that I think is, is getting me back to what we were talking about earlier about the craft of history when you think you can take people on this journey, but where do, you, where do they end up? And if you end, if you end up in a disappointing place, 
then you can make people really feel let down. Why did I, why did I go along on this, this, this intellectual journey with you? And so many and novels will show you that too. So while they can show you the positive things about, about you know, how to uh, humanize the, the historical characters that you're interested in, in talking about, they also can show you the, that how you, where you end where you take people really matters. And I mean, I've read so many great books that are great three quarters of the way through and they just didn't know how to end the story. Mm. And it just felt like a huge letdown in the end that you had that you had had read this book. And so that gets back to my point of when you when you get to the end of a historical book, so what? Why did I do this? Why did I read this? That that really needs to be thoughtfully constructed because often that's the last thing that people will will take away and you can be interested in all the intricacies and the details and the stories and every aspect of it is fascinating to you but but your your reader needs to be told or feel that in fact they have some they have a a, a takeaway that's meaningful for them and that i think can be uh, as much a challenge as uh, pulling somebody in is dropping them off at the end of the journey and feeling that it was worth taking. So we have almost, the sand is almost out of Jackie's hourglass. So the last <laughs> question I want to ask you is, uh, what do you still want to write? What is your dream project that you, you're rolling your eyes. So maybe that was a bad question well, to it's ask just you. Such but- a, no, it's not. I do have a dream project actually. And it's a project I'm wrestling with right now because I have a question that I'm really interested in, but I have not figured out how to approach it right now. So I've been, I spent most of my life writing about the First World War, different aspects of it. And I can't believe that I'm still so interested in in the First World War, but I am. I sympathize with that. Yes. But what I'm also interested in, I've, I've been using a lot of letters lately in the work that I'm doing. And what I'm really interested in is this notion that in the 20th century, we develop, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, military service and 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 often combatant service as a as a experience that links generations. So uh, fathers who fight in World War One have sons that fight in World War Two, who have grandchildren that fight in Korea or Vietnam. So we develop these intergenerational service families, often unintentionally because just because of selective service or sometimes intentionally because of people deciding on military careers. But what this really means in a kind of intergenerational family way is interesting to me and and how it affects relationships within families and, and how this almost family tradition becomes established in the 20th century because of the timings of our of our wars. And I mean, people have studied families a lot, but often in isolation of a particular yeah, conflict. Yeah, not intergenerational. Not intergenerational. Yeah. And, and, the, and I kind of got this, this interest because of some collections of letters that I had been finding between uh, World War II soldiers and their fathers who it was all about uh, military service and about the, the details of it and about advice and this and under, trying to figure out similarities or sons trying to live up to the stories their fathers had told them about their heroism and all of these really interesting uh things to untangle and and so it's this is a really interesting question to me at the moment and it's when we think about the american way of war we tend to 
to answer that question more at a strategic level than this kind of, this sort of mm -hmm. familial uh, level. And so the challenge is you can be interested in this and have a few anecdotal um, uh, stories that you can tell, but how do I really put this together into a study that's meaningful and and doable yeah. <laughs> the end thing. So that's, so I guess that's my dream study for the moment because that's the big thing that I'm sort of grappling with in terms of how to handle because it would be uh, as, trying to do something new methodologically and it would be taking me out of my comfort zone in terms of you know staying in the in the first world war. But it's but it but it it'll probably be the next big project that I do. So this is a good place to end because then I can invite you to come to the Army Heritage and Education Center That's where we right. have lots of these letters <laughs> and we have lots of evidence that you would be using for that and to welcome you to Carlisle and we'll arrange a talk for you to talk about this. I would be happy to come. Thank All right, you. You're welcome anytime. So Jennifer, thank you very much for taking this time. This has been fantastic. Absolutely. And uh, we'll hope that we'll see you in Carlisle. I hope. hope so. Great. All right. Thank All right, you. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.